0: Esther. I am using this book. It's called The Dawn. It's by a guy named Yoram Hazoni. As most of you know, there's some controversy about the book of Esther. There are lots of people who don't think it belongs in the canon. For one thing, it's a history book, and the name of God's never mentioned. However, the rabbis who put together the Tanakh were of the opinion that the entire scripture hangs on the Torah and Esther. Rabbis will fight you tooth and nail about getting rid of Esther. They say everything else can pass away, but not the Torah and not Esther. From their perspective, it's a really important book. And it is important. Obviously it deals with Jews in exile. The events of Esther take place about 480 BC. There's some controversy as to who the king of Persia was, little reading I've done. The dominant opinion is it's Xerxes, one, who is the son of Darius, who was a Persian king, right after the Babylonian conquest. You know when Persia takes over Babylon. If you'll remember, the uh, Babylonian exile took place, I believe, in the 580s BC. So this is about a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian exile. It goes to how the Jews behave in exile. We've talked about this in Midrash quite a bit. We've talked about the four examples of exile in scripture and how the four tribal temperaments of the leaders of each of those exiles influence how exile goes. So first one was Joseph who presided over the original exile to Egypt and he's from the tribe of Joseph and he's a bureaucrat. you are gonna be in exile and you're going to be there for a while, you want somebody like Joseph in charge, because he will make things go very well. The next one, of course, is Moses, who is a Levite. And if you want somebody who's going to stand up and get right in Pharaoh's face and get you out of there, you want a Levite, because they're hot-headed. The next one is Daniel, and Daniel is from Judah. And Daniel is, again, a good bureaucrat. He rises, as did Joseph, to the number two position in the Babylonian Empire, and then the last one we're going to study is the one today where you have Mordecai, and Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. He also eventually rises to the number two position in the empire. So if, if Jews are going to be in exile, you sort of got a spectrum of how they can behave. At one end of it is where they're totally helpless, and the whim of the alien ruler can result in their physical destruction. At the other end, You can be a ghetto where the Jews remain distinct, identifiable, and persecuted. And then in between, you've got the case where they rise to prominence in the Gentile Empire, and that's, of course, Daniel and Joseph. And what they're able to do there is they're able to protect their fellow Jews or Hebrews and look out for their interest. The last one is you can assimilate, which is to say you can basically go native, which is what Ephraim did. Priam goes into exile and assimilates and is never heard from again. And the problem that we have in exile is you're in an alien culture. All of the social and religious structures that exist in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, are gone. So you don't have a temple. You don't have a priesthood. You don't have your own government. And basically you're living as an alien in somebody else's government. How do you maintain your identity as a Hebrew under those circumstances? And as I say, as far as we know, Ephraim did not. They disappeared. In the case of Joseph, Moses, Daniel, and Mordecai, they do maintain their identity, but they do it in different ways in each case. So with that, let's get in. So I'm in Esther 1. Now in the days of Hasuerus, the Hasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea, the nobles and governors of the provinces, were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the Garden of the King's Palace. At this point, he's in his third year of his reign. He is, in that sense, a young king. I read a little bit about the succession. If Ahasuerus is Xerxes I, I'm, I'm assuming that that's the case. His father was Darius. His dad was preparing to go on a military expedition. Apparently the law in Persian at that time is when the king headed off with the army He would appoint a successor, and he didn't come back. So if something happens to the king on this trip, you don't have a succession struggle. And Xerxes I was the guy that was appointed. So at this point, he has brought in all of the governors of all of the provinces. And notice, you know, it talks about the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were the ones that took over Babylon. They're the ones that, you know, with the handwriting on the wall, and Belteshazzar and so forth. And eventually the Persians absorbed the Medes. So the fact that the Medes and the Persians are there is sort of an indication that this is early in that process, which would lead one to give some credence to the idea that it's Xerxes I. Ahasuerus may have simply been a title, like Tsar, and this Ahasuerus and Esther when they came together sired Cyrus, who is the guy that then presides over the return from exile under Nehemiah, and so forth. And that's very plausible, but not evidential. So anyway, he's got everybody coming for six months. And if you are a young king just taking over your empire, taking all the leadership out of the loop for six months, it may or may not be a good idea. What we're gonna find as we go through this is that Jasueras has a real lust for power, but he's got a couple of characteristics. Characteristic number one is he doesn't ever take initiative. The sort of the story of the entire book is he gets manipulated by people and he gets shoved in various directions and is not in fact the initiator of much of anything. And we'll point those out as we go through. There is a possibility, given all that, that he is in fact not a very good ruler. He is also cautious. He makes one rash mistake, which you'll make in just a minute, and realizes he's made a mistake, and backs up and starts talking to his advisors. And all of the decisions he makes are taken in consultation with his various advisors, which, as I say, is a good thing. I'm not suggesting that's bad, but as I say, he's, he's not much of an independent actor. So now we have two feasts that have gone on. Feast number one is for all of the imperial hierarchy that has been brought in for six months just for that purpose. Feast number two is after all of the foreign dignitaries have left, there is a seven-day feast for the inhabitants of Susa. And Susa is the summer capital of the Persian Empire. And it's right in the foothills of the mountains as you're coming up out of the plains of Babylon. It's sort of a delightful summer place up in the mountains, cool air, all that kind of stuff. It has been a palace for Babylonian kings. It was a palace for... uh, Persian kings. So back into Esther now. Let's pick it up in five again. When those days were completed, the king gave for all the people, present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. In other words, a very opulent place. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Verse 8, Drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. What he's doing there is giving his guests a measure of freedom. If you are invited to the king's palace and the king keeps shoving glasses of wine at you, it would be considered at best poor form not to partake of the king's hospitality. In other words, you don't want to be the one sitting there saying, no, thank you, I'm done, while everybody else around there is drinking, because it makes you look ungrateful. It makes you look as if you're not enjoying the king's wine. It makes you look all sorts of things. So when the king says nobody is compelled to drink wine, what he's saying is he is giving you a measure of freedom. And in tyranny, being given a small measure of freedom is often a way to buy loyalty. This guy's a tyrant, but he could be a lot worse. And again, this is for the people that live in the city where he lives. Close. And then, of course, Vashti is also giving a parallel feast for all the ladies. So now we're down to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, he's drunk, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, and Harbona, Bigtha, Abagda, Zahar, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at." This again tells you something about his character. His queen is to him on a par with the beautiful walls, the beautiful dishes, the lavish feast, This is all just something that is pointing to me, the king, and showing what great taste I have, how great I am, and look at all this great stuff that I have around me. And oh, by the way, here's another piece of great stuff, the queen. This is not as you would do at, say, you were at a cocktail party with your husband or your wife, and you went up to your boss, or, or your boss came up to you and said, this is my wife, Susie. And you meet Susie, and you make conversation. Susie and the boss have a relationship. There isn't an obvious relationship other than possession here with Vashti. She is a possession that he is showing off for his own aggrandizement. And she, of course, says, hey, bucko, you're drunk. And (laughs) doesn't show up. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. At this point, he's been snubbed by his wife in front of everybody, which is uh, we're going to, of course, find out on her part is a bad career move. So the question now becomes, how does he handle this? 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marish, Marsena, and Momokan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So he's been embarrassed in front of his vassal kings. 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Now this is brilliant, because what he's done is he has turned a domestic spat into an affair of state. And so now he no longer looks like The husband whose wife has just told him to call me back when you sober up, Jack. And he's now a king who has been scorned, and it is now a matter of law. Very artful. Verse 16. Then Memochan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So his advisors are agreeing with him, saying, oh, you're right, this is not some simple domestic spat that's going on here. This is, in fact, a matter of precedence, a matter of law, and the way this is handled is going to have ramifications throughout the entire kingdom. He has done an about-face, and now Vashti, she has now become a rebel, she has now become the subject of an affair of state, and it is no longer the man, King Ahasuerus, who has a problem with his wife, it is the king who has a problem with a subject. All this setup, by the way, is by way of showing the king's character because his character is going to play through for the rest of the book. So this setup is necessary in addition to giving a lead-in as to how Esther gets to be queen. Getting rid of the old queen is, is a necessary setup for Esther to become queen. That's true, but it also is setting up the character of the king in this process. Verse 18. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same thing, to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In other words, not only are these women going to be uppity to their husbands, they are going to be uppity to your officials, O king. 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Hazwaras, and let the king give her royal portion to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. The advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memotan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men, who attended him, said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins into the harem in Susa, the capital under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Boshti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Notice again, this is not something that the king initiates. This is something that one of his advisors suggests. When he sobers up, he realizes that he is without a queen, which is a place he doesn't like to be. I sort of think that when he sobered up the next morning, he's regretting what he has done, but there's nothing he can do about it. So one of his advisors makes this suggestion that we basically round up all the beautiful eligible young women and let the king pick one. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here. This is rape. Because A, these young women have absolutely no choice in the matter. So, for example, Mordecai doesn't volunteer Hadassah. She gets scooped up. Once she gets scooped up, he then advises her how to behave, but he is not volunteering her for this job when these young women go into the royal court they're all young they're all maidens which is to say that they are inexperienced not just sexually they're young people inexperienced in, in the ways of the world so it is not the case that he is dealing with a woman of his own age as presumably vashti was he is deliberately picking women who are inexperienced and malleable Third thing he's doing is, as they come in, they're going to be given a trial. And that trial involves spending the night with the king. At the end of that process, if they do not please the king, they are basically nuns for the rest of their life. Because having been with the king, they don't get to go out and find somebody else to marry. They stay in the royal harem, and he's not interested in them. So this is really a very nasty exercise of royal prerogative. There have been movies where this has been sort of romanticized. Ooh, I get a chance to be the queen. And everything is, oh wow, this is really a great chance. No, it's not. Because only one of the gals is going to be the queen and the rest of them are going to get a raw deal. And oh, by the way, none of them has a choice in the process. This is basically state-sponsored rape. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. That's going to be important. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. It isn't clear that Mordecai was carried away. You have son of Kish, a Benjaminite, may have been Kish was carried away, and the Tanakh has, in parentheses, Kish was carried away. So it is not necessarily the case that Mordecai was himself carried away. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai and Hadassah live in the citadel, which is to say they live in the palace area. They're not in the surrounding city. They are within the area of the court, and Mordecai is clearly known in the court. In other words, Mordecai is not some watchmaker out in town who just happens to be you know, Geppetto or somebody like that out there that happens to have a beautiful daughter who gets scarfed up. He is, in fact, part of the entourage within the citadel. Verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Haggai is a eunuch. By the way, eunuch can be a title of position. We always think of eunuch as a man who has been castrated. That is not necessarily the case. In Haggai's case, it probably was because of his duties his duties were taking care of the woman so he probably was a castrato but the term eunuch in biblical terms doesn't necessarily mean that verse 9 and the young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make them known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, Haggai's a bureaucrat. Haggai is basically in the stock breeding business, and his job is to make sure that what the king wants in women, the king gets. So if a young woman that gets sent up there is not pleasing to the king, it shows up badly on him. What Esther does, since she is in a position where the fate worst than death, quote unquote, is going to happen, what she does is she cozies up to Haggai. She finds out from him what the king is interested in. And in doing that, what she does is she makes his job easier. So if you've got young gals from all over the country all over the empire and they come in and they all got their little weird customs and you know some of them think it's real cute to have a tattoo on their backside and some of the other ones think it's real cute to have a bone through their nose and somebody else think it's real cute to do this that or the other thing and if i'm going to go into the king i want to look my best so i need a tattoo on my backside or a bone through my nose or you know whatever it is that i need hey guy's going to know what the king finds attractive And if he's got some gal that insists on having a tattoo on her bumper and he knows that the king is going to be turned off by that, he's not going to be favorably disposed to that young lady because sending her in is going to reflect badly on him. So when Esther cozies up to him and says, all right, how should I do this? What she's doing is she is setting him up to look good by taking his advice. Hence, he then gives her special treatment and special privileges and stuff because he knows that she is going to make him look good in that process. And, oh, by the way, Mordecai tells Esther, don't let anybody know who or what you are. And he keeps checking up with her. Now, verse 12. Now, when the term came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oils of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, then the young woman went into the king in this way. She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem of the king's palace. In other words, okay, babe, this is your shot. What do you need to make the sale? In other words, if you make the sale, you're going to become queen. What do you need to make the sale? And as I say, if... You come from someplace like Ethiopia and you need a cork through your nose or something like that in order to feel beautiful. Whatever it is that you think you need. Now this is your shot. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shahashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So she's got this one shot. She goes in spends the night with the king. If she comes back out and she is not the chosen one, then she goes into the rest with the rest of the concubines, which means she lives out the rest of her life in celibacy, in the king's harem, and she never sees the king again unless he happens to call her by name. As I say, this whole thing is not romantic at all. Verse 15, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuchs, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Okay, that's what I went through before. Haggai's sole concern is to make sure that the king has a good time. He's been at this long enough that he knows what in the king's mind constitutes a good time. So Esther turns to him and says, what do I do? And he just puffs up like a toad and he says, this is what you do. Because he knows that if she follows his advice, the king will have a good time and that will reflect favorably on him. Verse 16. And when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, In the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther hits a home run, and makes a lifelong friend of Haggai, verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. A bunch of stuff going on here that obviously is going to have ramifications to the rest of the book. First off, notice again that Mordecai is within the royal court. He is in a position to find out things about the king's guards. Mordecai is a player. Mordecai inserts himself into Persian politics at this point. It is entirely possible for Mordecai to say nothing. And the plot then goes on by interfering in this plot and you can be sure that there are more involved than just big fan and teresh what he's done is he has placed himself at some personal risk because when there's a coup afoot deciding which side of the coup you're going to be on becomes a really important decision he has made a decision that he's going to stay with the king and you know what his reasons were i don't know i imagine that one of them is we're in exile there's going to be a persian king I know this one. I don't know who's going to show up next. So better the king that I know than the one that I don't. Plus my adopted daughter is the queen. Now the other thing about this incident is this really sets up the entire rest of the story. And what's going on here is Haman's going to show up in the next chapter. Haman has not been mentioned heretofore in the book. So Haman comes out of left field we have had in the first two chapters the names of a whole bunch of high-level officials and courtiers mentioned as we go along. You know, close advisors, princes, all that kind of thing. And some of them will show up again later. Haman has not been mentioned in any of this. The speculation of the guy that wrote this book, Hazoni, is that Haman is basically a hatchet man that gets brought in as a result of this attempted coup. In the first vignette of the feast the king is in the midst of this great big party with all sorts of officials and people wandering around and getting drunk and all that kind of stuff and he's sort of right in the middle of the mix. He's asking advice from politicians and he's asking advice from advisors and he's showing off all of his stuff And he's sort of going around glad-handing everybody and so forth. The next thing that happens to him is somebody takes a shot at him. So the speculation here is Haman is brought in to be a layer between the king and everybody else. Because what he's discovered is being in the midst of all these people is in fact dangerous. So what he does is he gets... A hatchet man, a henchman, a chief of staff, whatever you want to call it. And everything now has to go through this chief of staff. One point of contact that I can keep an eye on instead of a whole court around me, any one of which may have a knife. And oh, by the way, this same setup is why Esther says that I can't go into him unless he asks for me. So part of this setup is the only people that get into the king are those who go through Haman, who the king or Haman has asked for. That includes the queen. This assassination attempt, if you will, sets up the rise to power of Haman. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com/purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.